Good morning, friends. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, in case you're visiting today. It's good to have you with us. We've been in a series on the Gospel of Mark. We plan to be in it for some time. And this morning, because it's the beginning of the school year, and everybody's kind of getting back into the school thrust, I was thinking about a statement that you will probably see on, uh, I'm going to talk real slowly here to keep you hanging on every word. There we go. You go to any university and you'll see outside on many of the entryway doors carved into stone in English, French, Latin, German, whatever, the truth will set you free. Very common statement. I remember my mom telling me that statement often when I was a young boy lying to her. And she would say, Ben, the truth will set you free here. And I'm trying to weigh the punishment versus the freedom and I don't know what to do. The truth will set you free. That's an interesting statement. Jesus never said it. The Bible doesn't say it. Oh, we might say, oh man, that's great. That's, that's one of those Bible statements that's made itself, made its way into our culture. But you won't find it. That's interesting. So where is that coming from? The truth will set you free. I think many of you are like, I'm pretty sure it's in there, 13. I'm pretty sure it's in the Bible. Well, you're kind of right. It is somewhat. Specifically, there is a progression in the scriptures that end up with that statement. You might recognize it from John chapter 8. Jesus does say, if, so there's this conditional right off the bat. He says, here's a condition that I'm going to give you. If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. That root word of disciples again, matethes, is learners. You are my learners. If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and then you will know my truth, and the truth will set you free. Oh, there's a lot of conditioning before we get to the truth, you see? Sometimes we like, to, we like to take out all the Jesus part and just kind of keep it, well, truth, you know, the truth, the truth I believe, the truth I think, that'll set me free. If you continue in my word or abide in me, if you continue in me, then you will become my learners or disciples, and then you will know my truth, and that is what's going to set you free. That's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't say, if you continue in my word and abide in me, then you will believe in my truth, does he? He says, then you will know my truth. This is a description of how people come to have the knowledge of Jesus' kingdom, of how people come to know his actual truth. The freedom that he promises here, this truth of his that sets us free, is freedom specifically from bondage to sin. 
It is the freedom to live within the kingdom of God, and already in our exploration of Mark, we have seen Jesus bring this heavy-hitting statement about the kingdom of God being at hand, near. It has drawn near. It is possible now for you to live within this long-anticipated kingdom. That time is no longer out in the distant future. It's here. Pastor Daniel last weekend did that memorable, you know, reach out and grab it. It's, you can lay hold of this thing. And in this kingdom, according to the scriptures, you will never ever again have to say, I need to do wrong to survive. You'll never again feel or think that, that I need to do sin in order to make it. The kingdom will be so free from all bondage to sin that you will recognize my survival, my ongoing joy and happiness, all of these things that are the best of what it is to be human, those those don't require even a smidgen of sinfulness. that's, That's kind of a, it's easy to say that. That's a tough one to swallow, to really truly believe that that could be our way of life, and yet that is what Jesus is saying when he says the kingdom is at hand. We are no longer slaves. He says then, as we've seen already, repent and believe. To live in God's kingdom where there is no sin and there is no ignorance of God's will, there's no rebellion, then repenting is a good place to start, and so is believing. But notice that it's merely a start. Professing your belief is nothing more than a beginning point. And maybe it's good to do periodically throughout your Christian life just as a reminder. I really do believe. No, I do believe. But it's a beginning point. God calls us to something much deeper than just belief. For every human being who mistakenly focuses just on believing, there's a hollow Christianity not far behind that collapses at the first scent of distress. People who have believed in Jesus still need to know him. Let's say that again, that's important. People who have believed in Jesus have yet to know him. Knowing him, you can see it, can't you? You can feel it in your own life. Knowing him requires something much more A great Christian teacher I once heard say, believing has a rootless quality to it without knowledge. It will not carry you through. And isn't that what we really crave? To truly know Jesus. And in a a community sense where we all know Jesus the same way at the same level. The fact that we're sinful is often shown in how variant our Jesuses are, you know? You take tests about the things you love the most and all of your persuasions, and then, and then take the same test, answer the same questions about, about Jesus, almost always those answers are the same. Jesus is just like us. How, how interesting would it be if we all knew Jesus on his own terms, really, truly knew him, not just believed that he existed or something like that. To know deep down that the kingdom really is at hand, that God is totally real, 
totally present, 100% active, not distant, to know these things immediately, right at the fore, all of the time. He's truly carrying out all of his promises. That would be good to know these things. Well, when Jesus says, come and follow after me, and that'll be the text we look at today. We'll be in Mark chapter 1. When Jesus says, come and follow after me, this is a big part of his plan. I think we see a little picture of what he just generally does. He moves us from the point of believing, repent and believe, and he moves us to now leave and follow, leave the old way and follow after me. I think he's acclimating us to what it will be like to be alive in his kingdom. He's helping us to know himself and know his kingdom. And I'd like to be there. I think that'd be a good place for all of us to be, totally, confidently living in the kingdom of God and all that that means. You might say, well, pastor, I thought that Jesus, you just preached two weeks ago, that Jesus just came to preach the euangelion or the good news or the gospel. I thought he just came here to deliver us the truth, and I would say, yes, he did. Jesus did come to share the truth. And it's important to believe the truth. This is that truth that sets us free. But according to Jesus, and we've seen this already in John chapter 8, there's no way to have knowledge of this truth outside of, one, being a disciple of Jesus, and two, abiding in his word. You can't know his truth without doing those things. Being a learner of the Savior who is willing to continue or abide in his word. Following him, I think, is another kind of synonymous way to talk about those things. Being a learner who abides in his word, that's what it means to follow Jesus. So in Mark chapter 1, and you can turn there now, we see this opening scene where Jesus calls the first four human beings into that kind of life. Now, I believe today, in this 2016 world we live in, the church that Jesus died to establish and build and grow up, the church is issuing this call at a broader level. But here Jesus will issue this call to these four people, and he will, and he will say, come follow after me. He's moving them from just repenting and believing. Notice that there's something much more here. His goal is not merely to deliver new information to them. This is crucial for us in the information age. So you see it in those little commercials, you know, they give you some data, some statistic, and then say, by golly, the more you know, the more information you have, the better things are. Some, that's true in some ways. But Jesus is, what he means here is different. All right, so Mark chapter 1, we'll pick it up in verse 14. I want to hone in on 16 through 20, but we'll, we'll start it in 14. After Jesus was put into, or sorry, Jesus was not put into prison. That's John. We're back with John. All right. After John was put into prison, then Jesus goes out into Galilee proclaiming the euangelion. He goes out proclaiming the good news of God. 
The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake because they were fishermen. Verse 17, he says, Come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and they followed him. You see how repent and believe get paralleled with leave and follow? They left their nets and they followed him. And when they had gone a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, and they were preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. Euthus is a word that Mark likes to use a lot. We translate it like this, at once or without delay, immediately. Mark's gospel moves right along, which is good for people like me. You know, you don't want to get bogged down in the drama. He just gets right to the, right to the plot. So he's cooking along quickly, and, and I don't want you to have a sense of this stuff has all happened in the course of 17 seconds. It's just going that fast. It's not quite that fast, but it is that Mark is helping the story move along quickly for us, and what he wants you to know is that when Jesus issues the call to them, they don't sit there and say, I don't know about that, man. Let's hang out for five or six years and think about it. He wants us to know that there was, there was a very quick and very decisive response that they had. I am so drawn to the question of why. Why did these guys follow him? Did they think that he was super smart? I think probably. I think that's fair. I think the story would be quite weird if they thought Jesus was dumb. You know, this guy's not as smart as my father Zebedee, but let's just go follow him. So I think they, they saw something in him for sure. He was unique to them in some way. But Mark isn't really interested. He, he's not telling us what it was about them that was drawn to Jesus. He just leaves all that out. He doesn't tell us what they agreed with in terms of Jesus' teaching. He doesn't tell us what about the, his character, Jesus' character, that they were drawn to. What Mark wants us to see is that they were moved by this man to actually change their lives completely and to begin learning from him. That's the piece. That's what Mark wants you to see in their response. So quickly, my head goes to questions the Bible just isn't answering. But what Mark wants you to see without question is that Jesus was the kind of presence in their life that moved them to very firmly, decisively make a radical change in their life to leave the old pattern and to become his learners, to follow after him. I think it is possible, I think it's very possible that they had engaged with Jesus before this moment. We have some evidence for that in the other Gospels, and yet Mark just leaves that out. My point is, it's, not, it's, it's likely that this wasn't the very first time they had ever seen him or heard from him. And yet, even if they had seen from him or heard from him prior to this, Mark seems to think that's not really important to what I want you to see. 
He is very concerned with us knowing one thing. These four people made a choice to align themselves, completely align themselves with Jesus' life. And this was because Jesus himself commanded them to do so. He issued the call. It's kind of eerie, isn't it? I mean, if you, if you feel it the way Mark is wanting us to feel it, it's so immediate, it's so all-encompassing, and you just can't help but to say, man, what was going on here? Like the physical presence of God in the flesh as Jesus is so powerful to them that they can do nothing more than respond in this way to him. It's this, I don't know, it's just an eerie interest, eerie in a good way, but just like, man, what happened here? I would love to feel what Simon was feeling. I'd love to feel what Zebedee, the father, was feeling as he watches his boy say, Dad, we've got to roll, you know? That'd be tough. Did they believe that Jesus was the incarnate God? I don't, I don't know. I don't think so at this early point. I doubt that they said, oh, that's, that's the Son of God in the flesh. Maybe they thought that, but surely they were just thinking, could it be possible? Did they think he was the smartest man they ever met? Probably. I think so. That's just me. That's a little conjecture. I think they thought he was pretty sharp. Somehow, Jesus impressed on these men that he was their true king and that the kingdom was at hand and that he was worth following. We know from other texts that Jesus spoke with authority. And I think that you cannot speak with authority unless you really know what you're talking about. You know what I mean? It's, it, you, know, you know how it is when somebody's just sort of cobbling something together, they're not really sure, and when somebody really, truly knows what's going on. And Jesus spoke with that kind of authority. Now, there's something here that's a little bit subtle, but I think it's instructive for us. You'll notice how Jesus is starting to, he's just starting, and some of us know the story as it'll play out here, but here he's starting to put some dynamite to those opinions and presuppositions about what the king, the Messiah, the kingdom, all of these things would mean. People's theories and opinions don't really matter when the truth is present, even if they really truly believe them. This is one of the problems with belief, isn't it? You can actually believe false things. I'd be interested to know if you can truly know a false thing. But as good first century Jews, we would probably expect this long-awaited Messiah to sort of cruise into town with royal vestments some divine nukes that he could just sort of level out all of our less preferable people, the opposers, the Roman imperial guard, whatever it was that we wouldn't like. We would want this king to establish his kingdom by destroying all of the enemies. We want God's enemies to be brought to their knees, and so we have some expectation of that happening when God's king enters the world, and yet he doesn't do that. We'll see in the opening scene of chapter 2 that some of the most respected religious spokespeople and teachers of his day 
were not expecting a Messiah like this Jesus before them. So much so that they simply say outright, thou art crazy. Thine glory is blasphemous. They just don't believe it. It doesn't fit. You and I here today, I think we, we might have thought that the kingdom would be a place where we are instantly and miraculously made glorious and powerful with all-knowing simply on the basis of belief. That's how I was raised. I was raised that once you believe, all the rest of that stuff just happens. I think Jesus' truth really challenges that. We would expect royalty to act like royalty. We would expect them to be kingly, hitting the scene with big campaign promises to defeat enemies and build a formidable dominion so that everybody else would have to follow God. But it doesn't seem to be the way he's rolling. We might expect something from the king like lock and load. Jesus says instead, repent and believe. Leave and follow. He leaves his divine nukes at home and instead he brings a call to his true people. Repent and change your ways and turn toward God because the time that you've all been waiting for is at hand. The kingdom of God is now. It's within reach and to reach it, you start by repenting and believing the good news and then you continue by leaving your old life and following me into something very new. Repentance and belief are our weapons, as it were, that fight pride and selfishness, don't they? Repenting, believing, it's like the, it's the opposite of I've got this and I'm the best. You repent and believe. It clears the way, if you will. It sort of makes straight the path for you to walk on as you continue in Jesus' word, continue to abide in him. You might say, well, what, what's up? I thought he came to fight systemic evil only. I thought he came to fight unjust governments. I thought he came to fight the bad guys. Me repenting and me believing, that makes me think his target is in me. Is he trying to eradicate the sin from me? I think this guy is way more sinful. Let's blow him up. Jesus seems to strike right at our own hearts and say, I'm coming to do a work in you, son or daughter. I'm the son. The ladies are the daughters. I'm coming to eradicate sin from this world, and it's going to start right in your heart. Not only does he leave his nukes behind, but he cobbles together the most unlikely leadership team, doesn't he? Oh, this is great. This has to be one of the most encouraging parts of the whole story for each one of us. Jesus, Jesus cobbles together a very unlikely leadership team to charge, to, to forge ahead in the establishment of his kingdom. I would expect him to gather the most learned, well-connected, influential people in his land. We would expect him to scout for real measurable talent. I'd want to see some big platforming, you know, a lot of likes, a lot of followers, a lot of 
tweets or whatever. We'd look for big-time influencers that could set up shop in the high holy city of Jerusalem. That's what we would be anticipating. We would expect Jesus to throw down some KRAs. You business guys know those key result areas. Some places that are going to work and guys who can get the job done. Instead, he drops low. Pastor Fender taught us this last week. He drops low down to a place that's 700 feet below sea level in a little town, maybe like a hybrid between Garibaldi and Astoria on the, on the edge of the ocean to walk along this beach probably with black crushed basalt, not a nice sandy beach or anything like that. Think of the sort of beaches up in the gorge with all that crushed basalt rock. And then to talk and draw his lead team from a group of guys that are in the very common fishing industry. <laughs> That's good. These are probably not poverty-stricken men. We know that they're involved in an industry that's providing the staple diet of their day, so they weren't, they weren't people who had a staple diet of meat. It was fish. And these guys are probably producing enough fish where they're working in coinage. They're not just bartering for their services. They're selling their fish. And Zebedee seems to have hired help and boats that he owns. So these guys are not down in the, in the dumps, and they're not anywhere near the heights of glory. They're just common, average guys catching fish, wanting to live a decent life. Abraham Lincoln once said, God must love the common people. He sure made a lot of them. <laughs> you know, that's good. I like that. And Jesus says to these common guys, it is time for us, it is time for you guys to join with me and to step into something that is going to be quite uncommon. It's very interesting that right after proclaiming this kingdom, Jesus' first move is to do this, isn't it? The first thing he wants to do is get together a team. And it's a team of regular human beings. And he says, the first thing we're going to do is you're just going to come follow me. That's bold. You can meditate on that for a little while. That's a really interesting thing. That should inform for us a great deal about what the kingdom of God and living in it really is like. Sometimes I wonder if we overblow it a little bit to the point where we forget that it's about a daily patterned life after the Savior. We get excited about these huge, powerful miracles, da 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 da, da and it's like, no. The most impactful thing that God has ever done in this world by bringing his kingdom starts with cobbling together an unlikely lead team out of average fishermen. That says something to us. You might say, well, I hear this all the time, Pastor. Jesus is so radical. He's radical. He's radical. He did these things that nobody was expecting, and, and I believe you, that's great. I think that's cool. But why does it matter? How does that matter to me? I think that's a pretty good question. I often wonder the same thing. He was radical. I think a quick off-the-cuff response might be something like, if you think you've figured it all out, you might want to read the story again. If you think that the preferences and opinions and sort of summary statements that you've gathered over your lifetime sort of tell you the whole story, I think 
everybody in Jesus' day thought those same things, and yet when they meet Jesus face to face, it's like, wow, you really redefine everything for me. There's a couple things here I think this can really teach us. The most significant activity in the history of mankind happens through real human beings that align themselves together with one another and with Jesus. The world would put a whole different measure on what is most significant, yeah? And I think that these, this opening story for Jesus' great ministries, the way it starts, it helps us to understand what he values as most significant. It is not Jesus alone controlling everything alone and doing everything in his own power. I believe that that is what happens in the world, but notice he's drawing people into it. It's God working with human beings to act in very decisive and powerful ways. And this points us to the conclusion that life in God's kingdom is not passively experienced. So we don't just kind of chill here and say, wow, look at the great things God is doing over there. It's actively experienced. We are with him in the kingdom as Christians. And if we are not acting in step with him, then we're not in the kingdom. And this is all the statements. We'll see many more as we walk through this gospel where Jesus will point things out discerningly and say, yeah, that's not part of my kingdom. Yeah, you want to keep trying to do that? That's not going to jive with my kingdom. That doesn't fit. Walking in step with him is where we experience life in his kingdom. So it is active. Second thing that it teaches us is that even though these brothers surely regarded Jesus as worth following for a good reason. I mean, we just have to assume that. Otherwise, this is a story about fools. They obviously thought that he was worth following. They leave their lives behind and they go for it. Even though all of that is true, Mark is not emphasizing for us how willing these guys were to leave. I think it's there. I've acknowledged that. Mark's emphasis is on Jesus and Jesus only. It is on Jesus' perception of them far more, way more, exclusively more, than on their perception of Jesus. His clear understanding of what they will become when they live with him and they learn from him. So you see the statement, I will make you fishers of people. That's what you're going to become when you follow me. The focus Mark is trying to drive us at is Jesus and how Jesus sees them. Now, I'm interested in what you might have thought if Jesus says this to you, you know, you're out in your day-to-day, you're doing your normal work, and the Savior <laughs> steps up, and he says, hey, I want you to come follow me, I'm going to make you a fisher of people, I'm going to teach you how to fish for people. Oh, okay. You've got to kind of flush that out a little bit for our mind, and I think that a good North American evangelical might think of something along the lines of, of how to attract people. Come with me, and I will show you how to win people over for me with things that attract them to you, 
And then when you properly entice them into the boat, then you can hit them with the gospel. You know, if, you guys, if you've ever done any big, you know, I used to do salmon fishing off of Gill's Rock. So in Wisconsin, that's right off the, the thumb tip. My dad and I would go out there, and I was a little boy, and what's this thing hanging on the back of the boat, Dad? He's like, oh, that's the fish club. I'm like, oh, okay, and then you, you pull in a, you know, 20-pound king salmon, and it's flopping all over in the boat, and he just clubbed that thing until it's dead, and that's what you did. I think sometimes we think that way. If we can just sort of draw people into enough proximity with the Christian church, and boom, we can seal the deal, you know, they'll be locked in. There's nowhere else to go. But I think, I think that it's very different when we start to read this passage in context and understand what this sort of fishing metaphor would be about. He says, he says I'm going to make you fishers of people. Well, Jesus, he's a first century Jewish man growing up with the scriptures. He would understand from the Old Testament that the fisherman image was often connected to judgment. It was often connected to a sense of being able to discern God's people from not and what is following God and, and what is not. Uh, in the Old Testament, it was a signal for thoughtful, careful judgment, for discerning good from evil, God's followers from God's enemies. That's what the fishing language sort of comes from the Old Testament with. And then even the way that they fish, I grew up in Wisconsin, so you have a bobber, and then if you're fishing for bass, you throw an earthworm out. If you're fishing for walleyes, you jig with a leech off the rock bar, you know, whatever it would be, you're fishing for specific kinds of fish with specific kinds of bait. But these guys were just casting nets out into the water, indiscriminately catching whatever came into the net. They had some were round nets with weights around the edge and they'd sort of flip them out. They'd land in the water and then the weights would go down and push the fish down to the bottom. And they'd have to go and gather that net and get them. Sometimes they had rectangular ones they'd throw out behind the boat and sort of dredge it through the water. But they were pulling up whatever fish came into the net. The fisherman's job then was to separate the catfish from the tilapia. The ones that were good and useful from the ones that were not. So when he says, I will make you fishers of people, they're not thinking bobbers and earthworms. They're thinking nets, drawing in a bunch of fish and learning how to discern, not learning how to be judgmental and divisive, but learning how to help people understand the light and the darkness, the good and the evil, God's kingdom from what is not. I'm going to teach you that kind of stuff. Now I'm putting a lot of meaning into that one statement. But it surely is more along that line than it is along a hook and a line trying to figure out how to get people into the boat one by one, okay? That's important to see in that metaphor. I think then what you would probably have heard Jesus saying, if you were Simon or Andrew, James or John sitting there, you would hear him saying something more like, come and I will make you fishers of people. And that means that I will make you into a people who have the knowledge of my kingdom that is necessary for you to discern what belongs in my kingdom and what does not. I'm going to teach you this. Come with me. And that is not going to come from a printed check sheet of law with easy to follow criteria. 
Yeah, if that was all it took, Jesus could just start flinging out pamphlets. You know, here's the 10 marks of a kingdom person. Just do that. You're good. No, this is a complex life we lead, isn't it? Jesus is not so easily defined, is he? There's a lot of living with Jesus that it takes to really know him. That kind of knowing, that kind of discernment, that's something that you will learn from following me and abiding in me and remaining in me. And then, then you will be my disciples and then you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. To gain this kind of knowledge, they have to come after Jesus and they have to follow him. What would you have felt like if Jesus said this to you? What would you have felt like inside? Don't say, good, it's Jesus, I'd feel great. I mean, you can, we're in church, so you're allowed to say that. But you would say, how would you really feel if this was you? I don't think these guys are dropping their nets and saying, awesome, now I can leave every single thing that I know. And I feel enthusiastic about losing all of my security and my possessions, and my whole identity is now given to a guy who has just arrived on the scene, and he wants to redefine all of that. <laughs> Sweet. This is great. What a wonderful Wednesday. You know, I really doubt that they were just stoked. I very much believe that their decision to follow was accompanied by some suffering, by some fear, by some confusion. You see it later with Peter, and you know there's the whole scene, and Jesus is like, are you going to leave too? And Peter's just like, man, where else would I go? You alone have the words of eternal life. That's not a triumphal statement. That's a, I, I would if there was any other place to go, but you're the only one that matters. I think that they were suffering in some way. I think it would be fearful to just depart from everything that was so familiar to you. Kind of like you're faced with this irresistible gift. You're faced with this irresistible grace that also means you have to give your life over too. It's a gift given to you that also requires your whole life in return. The most amazing thing and I have to follow Jesus to attain it. Knowing him, knowing the kingdom, it doesn't just get zapped. I can't say no to this gift. Something about this Jesus is undeniable. But to receive it, simply believing that he gives it is not the goal. I have to let Jesus take the lead for real in my life in the most concrete way. I need to let him tell me what matters the most. I need to have Jesus tell me what is worth spending my time doing and what is not. I can't keep making that decision on my own, divorced from Jesus, and then say, well, you know, it'll pan out or whatever. I have to actually get really serious and say, Jesus gets to tell me what matters. Jesus gets to tell me what is worth spending my time doing and what is not. What I should be really concerned about and what I should really just ignore and leave alone. Jesus becomes our king. He sets the pattern for us to follow. I have to give up control. No human being gives up control easily. We just don't. 
None of us. It feels weird. It feels awful sometimes. Kind of like Eve back in the garden. She wants to take things into her own hands. Feeling that enslaving fear. Man, if you don't take the lead here, Eve, if you don't eat of that fruit, if you don't follow yourself and obey your own heart, well, then you're going to miss out on something amazing. I'll take this into my own hands. I'll take the lead. Jesus says, follow me, and I will make you into something new. You absolutely cannot live with me in my kingdom if you keep trying to take things into your own hands. It just won't work. When he says, leave your old way of life and all of its patterns and preferences and orientations and follow me and I will make you into something new. He is saying your new life in me is not going to come through how you think or feel about me, nor through contemplation about me. It comes through following It comes through action. This is how you're going to know him. The primary way that you know the reality of God in your life is through God acting with you. Both are acting. God first, and now you choose to act with him. The primary way that you know this reality is not through what you feel. We do experience feelings. They can be very helpful. They can be very informative for us. But action is where you know the kingdom of God. The scriptures give no indication that you can know the kingdom of God through contemplation. This kind of knowledge, which is the foundation of your faith, comes through action. This kind of knowing comes through action. And it's because you are primarily created to be an actor. I don't mean that in terms of movies and plays, but one who acts. Genesis teaches us that you were created to exercise dominion, to reveal responsibility in this world, to show what it's like to have responsibility, to have it yourself, to be a creator one who is active, and when you're acting with God, you are truly growing to know him and the reality of who he is and what he's about and so forth. So this is what we were built to be. It makes sense that Jesus calls us back to it. Our character will grow, our knowledge will grow, and as it does, when others ask about Jesus, we can speak from a true and deep discerning knowledge that has been attained through following him, not just reading about him or hearing me talk about him or somebody else. He teaches us to become fishers of people who teach people from a place of knowing. We can teach people about Jesus' commands and how to follow them because we are. We can teach people to obey all that Jesus has commanded. We can baptize them in his name. I think this is precisely why he calls disciples to action, to follow him. Right after saying the kingdom is at hand, he has the true knowledge of the kingdom. His hearers will comment this way, and they will say, Jesus, this one has authority. We can follow him. 
This is exactly what they mean when they say that. Simon, Andrew, James, and John, these are the first four people to recognize Jesus' call on their lives. And that it was an instruction on how to enter into God's newly arriving kingdom. They seem to hear Jesus' voice and recognize it. That's interesting, isn't it? I can't help but to hear some of John's shepherding language there. They seem to hear Jesus' voice and respond to it in a very trusting way. Like it was somehow always meant to be. Perhaps they didn't leave a father at all, but instead they found a father. I get really focused and wow, they left Zebedee, they left their father. Perhaps what Mark is helping us to see is not primarily that they left their father, but that they found their true father. From verse 15, we know that they had to repent and believe. And in verse 18, we know the next step was to leave and to follow. Repent is leaving the old way. Belief is following after Jesus and giving your life to him. William Barclay says this, and I'll say this to close. He says, it is as if Jesus said, give me 12 ordinary people, and with them, if they will give themselves to me, I will change the world. We should never think so much of what we are as of what Christ can make us. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for being so good to us. Thank you for your word. You've given us the scriptures to read and to know, to study and to learn. But as we try to insert ourselves into this amazing scene, in some ways even miraculous scene with you on that seashore with these fishermen, we try to feel what they were feeling, hear what you were saying, Think about it in terms of what you are all about. We're just blown away. You are so cool. You're amazing. You're so intelligent and wise. If, if, if feel at some level like we can see what you're saying and doing here and start to understand you, but I immediately know that we all yearn to know you more at a much deeper level in a way where we are confident and sure in all of your promises, in all of the things that you teach us. Help us to become men and women who are characterized by you. Help us to become men and women who genuinely, truly trust in you, who no longer believe that sin is necessary to survive or to, to experience the best that you have to offer us in life. Help us to become your learners, your disciples, so that we can know your truth and so that we can be set free by it. That's an amazing story you've given us in this text, and we're thankful. We love you, we trust you. Thank you. Amen.